The following message was given by Raymond Goodlett on Sunday, May 29th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Sunday morning gathering of Redemption Hill Church. I'm, I'm Raymond. I'm one of the pastors here. Do me a big favor. Go ahead and open your Bibles, if you will, to Proverbs chapter 30. We're going to continue in the book of Proverbs as we've been doing this summer. Proverbs chapter 30 will be in verses 5 and 6 this morning. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that's going to be on page 551. Page 551. And I'll also refer to a number of different passages today as we go through and so if you are actually using those Bibles we've provided there, I'll, I'll do my best to give you the page number for, for those that I want you to turn to. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 through 6. I'm going to read those for us. After that, I'll pray, and then, and then we'll see what else God wants to say this morning. Starting in verse 5, it says, Every word of God proves true. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Again, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for, for many things. We, we thank you even as we, we enter into Memorial Day here. We, we thank you so much for those who serve, who either served in the past or currently serve. And, and in particular, we, we thank you for those who, who made the ultimate sacrifice and whose families have endured that loss to, to preserve and protect the freedoms that we enjoy. And above all, Lord, we thank you for your word. And, and we just pray that right now, you would em empty me of myself or anything that would get in the way. Empty us. Remove any distraction that would cause there to be anything between your voice and our hearts. We pray that you would, you would accomplish, as you say in your word, that your word wouldn't come back to you void, but that you would accomplish the very purpose for which you set it out. Let it change us according to your desire. And we ask all this in, in the name of your son, Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Some of you have heard this, but I'll say it again for those who haven't. There, one day there was a uh, second grade teacher, and, and this was a history lesson she was giving the class. And she said, class, this week, I want you to draw a picture of something that happened in the past. Now, it can be something that happened in this country or something that happened in another country far away. It can be something that happened a really long time ago, or it can be something that happened not so long ago. As long as it really happened, It'll be fine. So you can't, you can't draw like Captain Hook getting his hand eaten off by an alligator. That wouldn't count. So everybody understood and she went around, she asked a few kids in the class, you know, what do you, what do you plan to draw? And the first student said, well, I'm, I'm going to draw George Washington crossing the Delaware River during the American Revolution. And the teacher loved that one. <laughs> then she went to the second student. She said, well, I'm going to draw Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat on the bus. And the teacher loved that one too. And then she came to little Tommy. 
And little Tommy said, I am going to draw Jonah getting swallowed by a very big fish. And the teacher said, eh, little Tommy, that, that's a, that would be fine for a religion class. But remember, this is a history class. You have to draw something that actually happened. Little Tommy was quite confused and offended. He said, but, but it, it did really happen. It's, it's in the Bible. The teacher was getting a little frustrated and wanting to move on. And she said, well, I hate to break this to you, little Tommy, but fish don't swallow people. You're just going to have to draw something else. Tommy said, well, look, I believe it really did happen. In fact, one day when I go to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah himself. Teacher was, she's had it by now. She said, well, what if he's not in heaven? What if he's, you know, where? And Tommy said, well, then I guess you'll have to ask him. Ah, <laughs> uh, clearly... Clearly that is made up, clearly. <laughs> uh, what, what is not made up, however, what is not made up is the fact that I think if we're honest, even many professing Christians today um, no longer believe in the complete and perfect trustworthiness of God's word when it speaks about certain things. Whether that's certain miracles, I mean, we, we claim to believe that God, out of nothing, created everything that exists. This entire world, all of us, with nothing but His Word and His will. And yet somehow, when it comes to a miracle like preparing a particular fish to swallow a man and uber him to his destination, we think that that somehow is a bridge too far for the God who could make everything. Not quite sure how that works, but if you can believe the former, you should be able to believe the latter. But... But when it comes to certain things the Bible teaches, especially those things that might cause us to lose some respectability in the eyes of others and things that have become deeply offensive to the culture around us, we tend to be slower today to affirm and to acknowledge that those words are true as well. And when it comes to those words, we say things like this. Well, the Bible was written by men. And of course, those imperfect men wrote their own cultural understandings and opinions into the text. As for us today, we're a little bit more enlightened on some of those things. And being more enlightened and sophisticated people, we're in a position now to judge what the Bible says and to determine which of these things from a moral perspective is still applicable to us today and which of these should be relegated to the past and be considered to be outdated. But friends, look at verse 5 again. It says what? Everybody? Every word of God proves true. Every single one. Now here are some other places in the Bible. If you have your pew Bibles, this first one is on page 986. Some other things that the Bible has to say about the trustworthiness of the Bible. And I know some of you are saying this is a circular argument. You're using the words of the Bible to validate the words of the Bible. Yeah, I, okay. Usually that's a bad way to go about things. But you, this is the Bible we're talking about. So you have to make an exception. And here's why. I always confirm the lesser by the greater. So if, let's say I have a child and, and she comes to me and says, Dad, I don't have any homework this week. 
In fact, we don't have any homework for the entire school year. I might be a little skeptical of that claim. I would say to my daughter, not that I don't trust you, but I just want to, I just want to make sure you understood your teacher correctly. So I'm going to go talk to your teacher about that. All right, and then I go and talk to the teacher, and the teacher says, yeah, it's true. I told them that they're not going to have any homework for the whole year. Now, that might lead to another conversation. But I would have had a confirming word from a more reliable source about that claim. The problem is, is when we try to confirm anything we read in the Bible, where do you go find a more trustworthy voice to confirm what God has said? I mean, if, if the Bible really is God speaking, can there possibly be a more trustworthy voice to confirm what he said? Can the greater confirm the lesser if you assign God's voice to be the lesser? Who's the greater at that point? What scientist, what philosopher, what other source of ideas can be considered more reliable than what I find in Scripture? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read more Scripture to confirm that every word of God is true. I'm going to let God tell me that what God said is valid and trustworthy. So page 986, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. So it's the word of God, and yes, you heard it from us, mere people, but when you heard it from us, you understood and you accepted it not simply as our word, but as the word of God, which is what it really is. Page 996. 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God would be competent, equipped for every good work. How much Scripture, church? All Scripture, including the part about a fish swallowing a man. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 through 21. This is page 1018 in those pew Bibles. 2 Peter 1, verse 20 and 21. Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So nothing we find in the Bible owes itself to some mere man looking around and interpreting things to the best of his ability and saying, this is what is true. No part of the Bible ever has as its origin the will or the mind of a mere human being like us. All Scripture, Peter says here, no prophecy of Scripture comes like that, but rather people spoke from God. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Every, every word of God proves true. Another way to say that the ultimate source, the ultimate voice behind the words of Scripture is the voice of God Himself. And God never lies. God always tells the truth. So let me ask you this. When you hear the Bible speaking about a given topic, 
For you, is that just one more perspective for you to consider as you're making up your mind? Or is it for you the final authoritative and definitive word on the subject? When you hear what the Bible has to say on a particular subject or issue, and now you have clarity regarding that, is that just one more perspective for you to consider alongside all these others as you're making up your mind? Or does it have more weight than that? Is it the final authoritative and definitive word on that matter for you? That's going to tell us a lot about who we really are on the inside. And I'll tell you something, that is going to be a really good thing for us to think about and a, and a challenging word as we round the corner here into the month of June. Because as you know, in our culture, June has been dubbed Pride Month with everything that that entails. And I, I won't spend too long on this, but here's what I want to, to say this morning. I want to give us a challenge. As Christians, those who are Christians, I want, I want you to read Romans chapter 1 this week. And in particular, the latter half of that chapter, verse 16 through 32. It will start by telling us that we're not ashamed of the gospel. And it will go on to describe the condition of the world apart from the grace of God. And not the only thing, but one of the things it addresses there is homosexuality and, and all the stuff that, that goes along with Pride Month. What I want you to do is read that and I want you to answer honestly two questions. Number one... What does Christianity teach there about things like Pride Month and everything that that entails? And number two, what does God say about giving my approval to such things? And then, as the other half of the challenge, I want us to read Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 1 through 7 in particular. If Romans chapter 1 tells us what our position should be on that issue, Titus chapter 3 speaks about what our disposition should be toward those who may hold a different view. And both of those together are extremely important if what we want to do is reflect the heart of Christ to our world. The position, the disposition must be held together if we want to be accurate reflections of God's heart. So I want you to read again. Second half of Romans chapter 1, first half of Titus chapter 3, and, and let us know what God says to you about those things. And I hope it will give you a measure of clarity. Now, we need in this generation clarity, we need conviction, and we need courage. Be good witnesses of Jesus Christ. So I'll, I'll ask you these questions. Do you possess clarity on issues like this and other issues of particular interest to our culture. If you possess clarity, do you have the conviction that the words you read in the Bible about these things are the words of God Himself? And then finally, do we have the courage to align ourselves and our lives with Scripture even when it becomes very costly for us to do so? May the Lord grant us the clarity, the conviction, and the courage that we need. Verse 5 says that every word of God proves true. And then it goes on to say that He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. In other words, God protects. He's a shield. He protects those who belong to Him. He, he is a shield. That's a, an indicative statement. It tells us that this is fact. This is true. 
He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And this word, like every other word in the Bible, proves itself to be true. It is time-tested, is kind of the sense that we have when we hear that it proves itself to be true. So let me ask, if you've lived long enough, or even if you've just been introduced to some of the less pleasant aspects of normal life, even if you're quite young, you might be thinking, well, why do God's people then come down with such severe illnesses at times? Where is God's protection then? Why are some of God's people, most faithful people, so strongly persecuted and punished precisely for their faith and their faithfulness to Him? Where's God's protection at those moments? And this is where I think verse 6 comes in. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 6. Do not add to His words, lest He rebuke you and you be found a liar. That, that command to not add to God's word is something we see repeated in Scripture. Usually with its, its twin or its partner command to not take anything away from God's word either. For instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32, we see that. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. You'll see the same thing essentially earlier in Deuteronomy in chapter 4, verse 2. And at the very end of the Bible, in, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 18, you'll see that again. And he'll say there, if you add to this word, the prophecy of this book, I will add to you the plagues mentioned herein. If you take away from it, take away your share in the tree of life. So that command comes with a, a very severe warning. But every word of God proves true, and we should not add anything to it or take away from it. Essentially, God is saying... There's nothing wrong with the word as I gave it to you. It's, it's perfectly fine the way it is. It's not a Google Doc that I'm sending the modern American church in suggestion or edit mode. He's not looking for our input. It's fine the way he gave it to us. No matter what we think about various things today. God is still true. And when he says don't add to his word, there are two particular ways in which we tend to do that. That, that I'm, I'm asking God to help us with. Oh, me, you, all of us. And one of those ways tends to put what I would say is a, an obstacle or a hurdle in front of people who are already believers. Who are already Christians. And the second tends to put a stumbling block in front of those who perhaps are on their way to becoming believers. Aren't believers yet, but they're maybe at that point where they're considering it. The first one is this. We tend to add to God's word in the sense of over-promising. We tend to over-promise when we speak to fellow Christians or fellow believers about the sort of protection and the precise nature of the benefits or protection that God guarantees to all of us who belong to Him in the here and now. What is true for all of us? What is guaranteed for all of us in the here and now because we belong to Christ? And here's what I mean even more specifically. Sometimes well-meaning Christians will promise other Christians that if they simply pray the right way or have enough faith or perfectly name every sin that needs to be confessed, then we can guarantee that we'll never get sick. 
We can guarantee that we can always keep hardship at arm's length and prevent it from entering our lives. But if you allow all of God's word to instruct us, we come up with a different picture, don't we? For instance, I think it would be fair to say, and you'd probably agree with me, that Peter, the Apostle Peter, enjoyed the favor of God. Yeah, you'd, probably, you'd probably agree that Peter enjoyed the favor of God. But listen to what Jesus said to Peter one day. And this is on page 882 of your pew Bible. This is in Luke chapter 22, in verse 31. Jesus has some breaking news for Peter. And he looks at him and he says, Simon, Simon, using his, his given name there, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, Peter was a fisherman. I don't know if he, if he understands exactly what Jesus means here by sifting you like wheat. Maybe he does. Um, but he knows it's not good, right? Satan himself has turned his attention to me the way he did to Job in the Bible. This can't be a good thing. If you're Peter at this point, what do you want Jesus to do? Like if, if Jesus is open to suggestions here, what might you put forward? Hey Jesus, can you just do that super Jesus power thing where you just tell Satan where to go and make sure he can't mess with my life at all? You can do that, right? Why don't I'll go with that. Look at what Jesus tells Peter instead. He does not promise to do that. He says, Satan has demanded to have you and sift you like wheat. But, you ready for the good news here, Peter? I have prayed for you. And you're probably, probably tempted if you're Peter to think that's less helpful than what you want. But if you've come to know Jesus at all, you understand he's giving Peter what's best for him. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Peter, I'm, I'm going to let this trial go forward. I'm, yeah, I'll put some parameters around this Satan guy. But I'm, I'm going to let him give it his best shot within the parameters I set. And what I'm promising to do for you is... I. I am going to pray for you that your faith might be preserved, that it might not fail. So that when you have passed through this trial, in fact, Peter would write this later in 1 Peter chapter 1 about our faith, which is a, it's, it's more precious than gold, which is refined in the fire. He says that for now you have had to endure certain trials so that your faith, that genuine faith, which is more precious than gold, even as it's refined by fire, might prove to be genuine and might result in praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter knew personally what that felt like for Jesus to allow him to go through a trial so that his faith might be purified and perfected. And so Jesus, yes, does protect Peter here, but maybe not in the way Peter would have hoped. He protects him in an even better and more important way by preventing Satan from absolutely demolishing his faith. And many times Jesus will do the same for us. Why does he allow the trial to come? Why does he allow us to pass through it? 
We know that in it all, he does promise to be with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. And we do know that he also designs to purify our faith. We can trust him. He allows it into our lives. We can trust him. And we should trust him. He's earned. He's earned that trust. Time would fail me, looking at the clock, to speak to you of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Jesus saw what was happening to him. And whereas usually in the Bible we hear that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, when Stephen was coming home, he said, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. Perhaps a standing ovation for Stephen as he welcomes him home. Time would fail me to talk about John the Baptist, the very cousin of Jesus, there in prison because of his faithfulness, on his way to being executed. Jesus doesn't rescue him from that. But we know preserves his faith. Of course, there's Paul with his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12. Jesus doesn't remove it. He says, my grace is sufficient for you in that. In all these things, Romans chapter 8 tells us, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are sure nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Things might hurt us. We might go through some awful trials, but nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who trust in Him, even if the protection looks a little bit different than we would have hoped. And there's one more way that we tend to add to God's word that, that we, we don't want to do. And, and that is, especially with those who are maybe coming to faith in Christ, we tend to overburden them with requirements that not even God himself puts upon them. Here's, here's kind of what I have in mind. Here's one example from the Bible. In Acts chapter 15, verse 1, we're told about some of the, the traditional and orthodox Jewish believers who, who came down from Judea. And it says here in chapter 15, verse 1, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, the believers now, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So here's a requirement for salvation that they are putting upon these new believers. And it's not one that God himself puts upon all believers after Christ has come here. And so Paul actually writes an entire letter in the, in the New Testament, the letter to the Galatians, to deal with this and similar issues. Now, this might not be our thing today. We might not require people to get circumcised, right? But we all tend to have our shibboleths, if you understand that, that uh, reference there to Judges chapter 12. There was this thing in Judges chapter 12 where people were trying to gain entrance into, into the city. And those standing guard said, say shibboleth. And if you couldn't pronounce it exactly right, they wouldn't let you in, to say the least. And, and we tend to have things like that. These things that people have to say perfectly or articulate just right if we're going to recognize and let them in. But, but listen, listen to what Jesus says here. There were a crowd of Jews one day was asking him about this thing. We're listening to you, Jesus, and it sounds different from the religion that we feel like we were brought up with. We, we trust and ascribe a great deal of credibility to you. But you're saying, what, what are you saying? What do we need to do 
to do the works God requires of us. John chapter 6, verse 28 and 29. They asked Jesus, what, was, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answered and said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Believe, believe, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And we tend to, we tend to add on to these things for people. And of course some of you would say, well we could go to another part of the Bible and say, oh, I got I to... Yes, we've got to repent. Yes, it says be baptized. Yes, but, but listen. Again, we're talking about what is required for every single person who will come to the Lord to gain entrance into heaven. And if we add even something like baptism, now let me, let me qualify this by saying this. If you have the opportunity, you should be baptized if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the first thing he tells us to do. And you'll have to agree, hopefully you'll have to admit that it's, it's a terrible way to begin a life of following Jesus if you ignore the very first thing he tells you to do. It's just not a good start to a life of following Jesus and calling him your master and Lord. I can imagine him saying, what about the first thing I told you to do? So if you have the opportunity... It really shouldn't be a question for the person who says, I am surrendered to Jesus. You get baptized. The thief on the cross had no opportunity. No opportunity. One of my, one of my favorite preachers is a, a guy named Alistair Begg. He's a Scottish pastor. He's got this great Scottish accent. I would do anything for that voice, that accent. <laughs> Even if you say something wrong, it just sounds right. Come to Christ. I mean, it just, you just want to come at that point. He was talking of, about this, and, and he was referencing uh, this two-question test that came out of the evangelism explosion, for those who are familiar with that. And, and question number one, are you, are you sure that you will spend eternity with God in heaven? And question number two, it, if you were to die tonight, and you were standing there before the gates and, and they asked you, why should we let you in? What would you say? And Alistair Begg, as, as only a Scotsman can do, he, he said, friends, if we, if we answer that second question in the first person, we've gotten it all wrong. Why should we let you in? Because I, because I, because I believed. Because I discovered, because I surrendered, because I trusted, because I he said, no, that second question can only rightly be answered in the third person. Because he, because he, because Jesus came, because Jesus lived this life, because Jesus died in my place, because Jesus was raised. Because Jesus sent his spirit. Because Jesus forgave and accepts me. And he said, just picture the scene with the, the thief on the cross, you know, get, getting up to heaven. I mean, he looks at Jesus on the cross and said, Jesus, just remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And Jesus says, this day you'll be with me in paradise. How do you get in? Imagine him getting, Alistair Beck says, before the gate of heaven and there's this angel standing guard and says, what are you doing here? I said, I, you know, you're right. I, I knew this was a mistake. I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I mean, there's no way I deserve to be let in. And the angel stops and says, well, wait, wait a minute, you're here now. Just, just what? I, I don't know. Let me get my supervising angel over here. And, and so he brings back the supervisor and the supervisor comes and, and says, I, I, I'm told you're, you're seeking entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Just, just want to ask, are you, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? Which is an important doctrine, but the, the, the thief would have said, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, what about some of the other doctrines of grace, like the doctrine of election? Where do you stand on the debate between predestination and free will? Never had a debate like that in my life. But have you, have you at least been baptized? No. Not even sprinkled? No. No. Then pray tell, upon what basis do you seek entrance into the kingdom of heaven? And Alistair Begg said, the man on the middle cross said I could come. They opened the gate. Listen, that may be all you know. If you are sitting here today, and you know enough to know that things aren't right between you and God. You know enough to know that you can't fix it yourself. You know enough to know that God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to do something about that. You know enough and you are beginning to believe that Jesus and only Jesus can put things right between you and God. You believe that he died on the cross in your place, that God raised him from the dead. And that he offers you a full pardon, complete forgiveness and acceptance and eternal life if you will trust in him. And you find yourself in your heart believing this. Then I'm telling you uh, on his behalf, the man on the middle cross says you can come. Nothing else stops you. Nothing else stops you. Will you come to him this morning if that's you? And notice I didn't ask if you want to come, right? I always tell people, my wife always asks me, do you, you want to help me make the bed? No, <laughs> I don't. You want to do the dishes? No, I don't. I, I, I'm, Christians should be honest, right? It's dangerous to be honest sometimes. <laughs> but the truth is at the time that I was asked the question, no. The honest answer is no, I do not want to help do that. And my wife said, well, will you? Oh, Christian man and pastor, will you? <laughs> will you? Help me with this. Yes, I will. I will. Not asking you if you want to come to Christ this morning. Will you come to Jesus? He's no longer on that middle cross. Where he sits now, he has all the power and authority to forgive you and to welcome you. No matter who you've been, who you think you are, what you've done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Every single one of us needs this. 
I'm just, just quickly looking back over some of the things in my own life. Thank you so much for your grace and your mercy, your forgiveness. The, the opportunity to call myself yours. No way any of us deserves that. But Lord, we thank you. And I, I pray that you would keep open the heart of anyone who has yet to bring their sins to Jesus' cross. But who's sensing the need and the desire to do it this way. Strengthen them. Give them the courage they need to take that step, knowing that you've done all the hard work. That today is a new day for them. Lord, we, we thank you for those of us who... who You've moved to do that in the past. We do pray, Lord, that you would help us to remember that every word of yours proves true. Give us clarity concerning what you say, the conviction that it is indeed you who say it, the courage to stand on your word, even in a world that's increasingly hostile and opposed to you and to what you say. Lord, help us to not only the truth for ourselves but to share it with others and to do so in a way that accurately reflects your heart for them we all need help with that so we ask that you would do those things we ask that in your name Jesus and everybody said Amen You've been listening to a message by Raymond Goodlett given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia For more information on the church and to hear other messages please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com dot org